You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, I want to invite you then, as is, as our, as is our custom and has been our kind of practice over the last little bit, into Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's the first gospel um, and, and it is an eyewitness account from a disciple of Jesus who was once Levi, called out of that into being Matthew, a disciple of Jesus. And so uh, you can make your way there to the fifth chapter. We've, we've been there in the last few weeks, and the chapter, chapters we'll be in for the next couple of weeks are what are known as the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, 6, and 7 are in many ways the most famous teaching that's ever been made. More has been written about this public discourse that Matthew introduces us to than anything else. And, uh, and, and in many ways, I, I think I've shared this, is like it's, it's, it's encouraging. Uh, you get to hear a really great sermon today uh, because I'm going to read an excerpt of one of Jesus's. And so that's, that's great for me. That makes my life a little, little better. Um, but also in that sense, we're, we're, we're tapping into something that is timeless uh, there, are, there are more things written about and said about the Sermon on the Mount than any other passage in the Bible. And so you'll have to forgive me. We're, we're trying to, in some ways, like, like expound upon the greatest exposition that's ever existed. And so in that, we're, we're needing a miracle. We're needing, I'm hoping you'll show me tons of grace. Even as we think about the topics that Jesus, think about this, like the first things he wants to talk about are what we're, what we're encountering here. The, the first most famous teaching includes some topics that I want to encourage you, you might not want to talk about. And I, and I want to warn you, you might feel uncomfortable as we talk about them, but I want to encourage you, they're meant to point us to who he is. And, and even if, in this case, this, this draws, even if this teaching draws attention to the places in your life where you've, you've wrecked it, you've destroyed it, where you have messed things up in relationships and in your own heart, I get to, I get to draw your attention to those things, not, not so that you will experience shame in them, but instead you'll realize, oh, Jesus has come to heal this too. Jesus speaks to and, and, and has come to make new even these places. And so that included last week uh, uh, in his teaching on, uh, on anger and the idea that in this sense, in his kingdom that he's bringing, perfect righteousness isn't just uh, a superficial or, or outward obedience to a series of rules and regulations, but instead perfect righteousness in this new kingdom Jesus is bringing includes purity even in the heart. And so his first topic was of anger and murder, and then the next few topics we'll find are lust, divorce, and truthfulness. And in many ways, they sum up together uh, what I would say is kind of a theme of commitment and integrity. And so I get to talk with a bunch of people enculturated with Western American ideals about the thing they probably don't want to talk about the most, namely sex and commitment. And so all three of these things that we, we see here are, show a different aspect of the character of God and what he wants for us in the kingdom he's bringing in Jesus. Namely, not that we would just refrain from certain things, but we would experience his very heart for us, a heart of love, of commitment, and in integrity. And I know that might seem provocative. You'll hear me read this and, and maybe feel the weight of that. And if you're new in this room, maybe you're kind of like, man, this is a great first Sunday to join. Why this? Um, I want to say thank you. I'm really grateful you're here. And all I want to tell you about this is that we as a church want to talk about the things that Jesus talks about. And, and, and if you find yourself saying, man, like these people talk about things that make me really uncomfortable, 
you should read more of what Jesus says. This is, like, that's his thing. And, and that's what makes him the most talked about, most influential and amazing person that's ever walked the face of the planet in 2,000 years and before. And so I, I want to encourage you, if these things make you uncomfortable, first, just personally, don't be mad at me. Don't be mad at us. Be mad at Jesus, right? He can handle your temper a little more than we can, right? Uh, but on the other hand, take seriously that, that this movement... This movement that spanned the globe over the last 2,000 years, the movement that has been tried to be stamped out more than any other movement in history that remains and even thrives as we gather in this room, was fueled by the works of this man named Jesus, and in this case, the, te- the teachings of this man named Jesus. So as he teaches us about his, about his kingdom, beginning in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, make your way there if you have a access to a a device that'll get you there. You'll see a blue paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please let that be our gift to you. Join us in this as as we begin to hear Jesus' words to us. Beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said, or heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. pray that we would hear the words of Jesus, even the words of Jesus that, makes, that make us uncomfortable. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been, according to chapter 4, proclaiming a general message, a theme of which is that we would repent, we would turn from other loyalties because his kingdom has come. And he is a good king who brings his kingdom in a way that's different than any other king you can imagine. Instead of sending his army of people out to die for his political causes, he runs out in front of them and dies in their place so that they would be safe, so that they would be cared for. And so, as Jesus begins to tell us about this kingdom that he's bringing and the righteousness and what it looks like to be in this kingdom, the the right living that we are looking for, then I want to encourage you, we're, we're invited to talk about some topics that are fairly difficult for us to talk about. So at the outset, I want to ask you for a ton of grace. We're going to talk about gender, 
about sexuality and about truthfulness. And I want you to know just in general, we're just not very good at talking about these things. And so already many of you are like, ooh, this, I, this, I don't know how this is going to go. You're already uncomfortable, right? Again, maybe that's, that was Jesus, not me. Because many of these topics you've heard talked about badly or hurtfully in a way that was unmerciful. And so I want to invite you into a conversation that Jesus is starting, that we would talk about these things seriously, and that we would contemplate what it might look like to really trust that Jesus is good and his lordship over our life is good. So much so that we would say every single area of our life is open to him. And that even today, I invite you that there would be no place in your life where you're like, man, I know better. Instead, you would let go and say, okay, Jesus, you, you know better. I trust you. And so, specifically, even in the topic of gender, I think this is a timely thing for Jesus to speak. This is not a topic we're good at talking about. We're a bit confused about this, right? And many of you are, are, have felt the effects of this. And so, the next thing is the topic of sexuality. Uh, now, I'm, my goal is to say this in such a way that's fairly PG. I'm not going to say anything that's salacious, um, and, and I hope that whatever unanswered questions that if, you know, depending on your age or, or whatever you land in the topic, like... Um, your, your parents or your gospel community leader would be happy to answer any of those questions. <laughs> but I want to start at the outset and just admit we're not very good at talking about this. So whatever we do next has to be ultimately motivated by grace. This is a place that Jesus spoke, and I want you to know it was just as provocative for him to say it then as it is now. It'd be easy to say that we're kind of like advanced in some way, but, but in this, here's, here's where we want to kind of walk through the instructive teaching that Jesus gives us on these topics and these three sections that all, I believe, point to kind of a central theme of what it means to have a righteous integrity, that we would see the righteous integrity of Jesus, and then we would see the righteous integrity that he's bringing about in you and me as we are a part of his kingdom. Now, individually, each of these deserves their own sermon, but I want to lump them together so that we'll see how they work together. And, and so in this sense, I want to start with the first topic, right? Over the last, uh, or, uh, last week and over the next, couple, uh, the next week, I believe we'll, we'll run through what these are called sixth antitheses. That is, the, Jesus starts by saying, Here's, you have heard it said, and, and in some cases, he quotes the Old Testament. He actually quotes the the, the Pentateuch, or the, Ten Command, uh, the first five books of the Bible, and even the, the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But then there are other times, like here, he quotes just simply something that other teachers of that day were, were pretty familiar with saying. And we find that here. But in the midst of these six antitheses, he's setting himself in a position of authority, and I just simply want to let, us, let that weigh on us and see what he has to say about it. So the first topic that I think he gives us an instruction on is the topic of Physical intimacy between humans. And, and the way I think we do this, we have, most of what I do today is I'm just going to explain how the Bible has talked about this and then invite us to contemplate then what Jesus is saying in light of it. So think of it this way. The, there's, there's, he's giving us a picture of what relationships between men and woman, women, specifically in this case in marriage, so you hear the language of adultery mixed in there. That's a, that's a language that, that, goes along the, the line, that goes with the theme of, of marriage, right? And this theme, and if you've ever heard, if you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, you've heard me say this. Um, and I hope that it's just as encouraging um, for you then. And I know it makes, makes a bride and groom stand there for a really long time. And I apologize, sort of. But like, people will come and go, like, I didn't know this. 
And, and so here's what I would say. The very first story in the Bible is how God made a man and a woman. And then he speaks a benediction over them. That is a benediction. That is a, a good word. Right? That's what a benediction is. That's what we, I'll dismiss you today with a benediction. Hopefully a good word. Hey, good news. You can go with good news. Right? And so the very first thing that God does, he creates the world. And, and the crowning achievement of, of his creation is a man and a woman. And he calls it good. And up to that point, everything has been good, except that the man was lacking a woman. And, and it says there that, that the Lord saw that the man didn't have a helper or a, or a companion fit for him, and it was not good. And so the very character of God re- relayed to us and revealed to us in creation is at its crowning achievement, at its climax, a man and a woman. And it's beautiful. Now, and so I think for this, this is why I don't, I don't mind talking about this in the way that Jesus talks about it, but even in the way that the Bible talks about it, is that what I want you to see is there, there are some ditches to fall into. And when we talk about gender and sexuality, there are probably two extremes you've heard and you could identify pretty well. That is the deification of sexuality, of physical intimacy between men and women. That is, it's everything. It's, it's, it is a driving force that owns you, or what I call this, the demonization of this. It's icky, yucky, don't do it. It's bad and evil. And neither of those is biblical. In fact, the Bible talks about human sexuality in a a way that would make everyone in this room blush. I mean, as, 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 right, think about how, it doesn't matter how progressive or how, what, what, you know, like how evolved and advanced your view of human sexuality, how liberated it is. There are things that Jesus will say here that will embarrass you. And it's because the very first picture, get this, God creates a man and a woman and creates them naked and then speaks a benediction over their intimacy. And so it gives us this beautiful, amazing picture. In fact, the very first scene, and man, if, you, if you don't believe me, I don't even have the courage to do this, uh, but there's a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon. And it's a story, a graphic, like the translators of this book are nice. Um, and here's a, like we want to walk through books of the Bible, and and I don't know what, I don't know when we're, how we're going to do that one. That's going to be like a Sunday night like marriage conference kind of thing. I don't, and that's not that's not Song of Solomon's fault. That's my I just don't know. I don't. I'm not mature. I'm not grown up enough. I. And and I was and and because because of that, I want you to see that the Bible's not embarrassed. We are, and so the first scene is of the man and woman coming together, and you have. Such a beautiful union that, that Adam, seeing this beautiful, this beautiful woman, writes a sonnet and engages in, in like singing a song. Because what he sees is too beautiful to explain. And all he can do is poetically cry out. He's like, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I tell, uh, I tell like couples that are getting married, all right, dudes, write poems, right? No, works of art. Whatever, whether it's, I don't know, you build stuff with wood, you paint things, you write things, works of art. Because there is a beauty that reflects the heart of God that cannot be put into words. It can only be expressed in art. And so get this, the very first scene is of naked Adam singing a song, writing a sonnet to naked Eve, and God presiding over the whole thing. And so the first thing I want you to see is that in the story of the Bible, there's a, a picture, I, I think, of the relationship between men and women such that the Bible is unafraid of talking about physical intimacy and even does so in a way that would make anyone blush. 
And again, I don't even have the courage to do that right now. Um, Just Google Song of Solomon and good luck. And so the first thing I want us to to avoid is what what Jesus is speaking to here is not meant to be a topic of shame and condemnation. It's an invitation into what God has gifted to the world. In fact, it was the first gift. Uh, Some commentators would even say, like, it might not have even been wise that God gave such a powerful gift to human beings. There would be less sin and destruction in the world. And that gift is amazing. That gift has literally the power to bring life. Not only is it how the, our species like, carries on and survives, it is a powerful source of pleasure and joy. But in the same way that the first stories of a man and woman, intimate with one another, shamelessly naked, one with one another, sin causes irreparable harm in that place. In Genesis 3, we see sin entering that relationship and they immediately turn on one another. What was beautiful and marked by a sonnet is now closer to what we see in the world and is evidence of like, our difficulty of talking about gender and sexuality. Namely, right, the, there's, there's just a, there's a, the blame game starts, right? Like, like what's happening here? What's, what's broken? God enters in as, as if God already knows, and the woman's like, well, it was a snake. That was the, that was the reason. It wasn't me. It was someone else's fault. And then and the man is like, no, 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 no. It was her fault, right? It was the woman. And he even blames God. It was the woman that you gave me. And from then on, the prophecy to, to the serpent who deceived them and to the man and the woman is that there will be enmity between all of you and it will be irreparable. And the promise is that that irreparable harm that's caused between that man and the woman, he says, the seed that one day the seed of this serpent, this snake, will square off against the seed of this woman. Again, if that's not usually something we... I, I draw this attention because that isn't a word we typically use to describe uh, females when we talk about reproduction. And if that confuses you, again, talk to your gospel community leader, your mom or dad or whoever. And it says, there will square off one day and the seed of this woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the snake. And so the place where there was irreparable harm, we see a picture then of hope. So the rest of the New Old Testament describes the relationship between God and his people as the, the relationship of a husband and a wife. It's so much so that the most profound example of this is the prophet Hosea, who's called by God to live out in faithfulness to his unfaithful wife the calling that, that the message of God's people needed to hear. Namely, that in the same way that Hosea was called to be faithful to an unfaithful wife, he was imaging the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. And where was it illustrated? A picture of a man and a woman. All the way to the point where Ephesians 5, right, when things can't get any worse and Jesus comes to save the day, Ephesians 5 tells us the image of this, the picture of this that we saw at the beginning is what? Is of a bride and a groom of Christ coming to lay down his life for the church and the church gloriously saved by Christ and their union is a picture that is only visible evidently in the picture of a husband and a wife. And so I want you to see the the picture of of gender and physical intimacy between men and women is meant to be, and and this is maybe the most helpful thing, it is meant to be an invitation to joy and to worship and thanksgiving. But we have to admit the fact that it often, even in just the evidence, it probably makes your skin crawl to talk about it. More often than not, it's a topic that brings about shame and condemnation. 
And so when Jesus talks about this, at the very least, I want you to hear that whatever shame and hurt and condemnation that this powerful gift that God has given might have actually caused to you, Jesus says, I know about it, I'm aware of it, and I'm here to help. And so he gives us a picture of how that's broken. If ultimately that God created men and women to function a certain way and to give themselves completely comprehensively to one another, and sin busts that up, then the, what I would say the lack of integrity here is, the, is what we see here, him saying, you have heard it said, don't break that up in that sense by committing adultery, but I say to you, like you did last week, there's actually something in the heart. There is an intent, and he says that if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, he speaks specifically of a man to a woman. Now, th- again, this is where you need, you need to please show me grace. We're not really good at saying anything specifically about a man and a woman. Uh, we would rather think of them as completely interchangeable. They're completely separate. Um, and, or they're completely interchangeable. They're, you know, don't, don't make any distinctions. But I, I just want to say, Jesus doesn't have a problem saying this. So the caveat and the disclaimer I will say, just because we might say something that's true of a man, it doesn't mean that it isn't ever true of a woman, right? It doesn't mean that we don't want to see women serve in this thrive in the same capacity. It just means that Jesus is making a point and we want to take him seriously. And at least with the topic of lust, I know this affects men and women differently, but in this sense, he's at least calling out the men, so I'm going to take that seriously. Even though we and I both know you can have a lustful intent in the heart of a, a male or a female, but he, he calls out men, right? He already does something that makes us uncomfortable, talking to men in a room and not the women. Obviously, it could apply either way, But he says that there's something that, evidently, if a man were to lust after a woman, he's already committed adultery. So while quoting the Ten Commandments and saying, you already heard this said, I mean, I already already don't agree with him. I think in in 2022, if I I said in a room, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I think most people in 2022 would be like, I've actually not heard that said. And so Jesus is already like speaking something that, even before he gets really provocative, I think he's already saying something provocative, namely that marriage matters and it's a picture of something beautiful. And so he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I'm saying underneath that, the same kind of damage that adultery does can be seen when someone looks at a person with lustful intent. So he's talking about a lack of integrity with the way that we look at something and the way that we give ourselves to something. And he gives us maybe some, rust, uh, some, some rough definitions that I, w- I, would, I think are helpful for us. Lust is when we want something without being willing to commit and give ourselves to it. More deeply, lust is when we look to something to get what we can only get from God. Now let me unpack that. If you go all the way back to the very first story, is that this thing that exists between a man and a woman is a beautiful creation of God. The thing that makes you blush, God's like, this is great. Look what I just, this is amazing. Watch this. Watch how these people act, right? It's a beautiful thing. And so in that sense, it is something that God gives as a gift. Just one more thing that we would experience his goodness and thank him for. And lust is when we separate that gratitude that we get, that we give to God when we receive that gift. Lust is when we say, I just want the benefits of the thing. I don't want the actual thing. And so lust is when we, we want the benefits of something, but we don't want to actually commit ourselves to it. 
Because after all, that picture throughout the entirety of the Bible of a man and woman where sin destroys their relationship, and yet, and yet they image in reconciliation, right? And, and, and you already know this, right? Men and women are weirdly different. You can act like they're interchangeable. They're not. They're every, every, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, every man in the room would look at, and look at a woman and go, I don't understand this. And every woman would look at a man in the room and go, I don't understand this. And we're meant to see, that's, you're not supposed to run from that. You're not supposed to dismiss that and go, oh, they're the same. You're supposed to see, wow, it's going to take a miracle of grace for these two things to work together. And so therefore, the picture of the gospel of Christ giving himself to the church, the fulfillment of this, of this first picture of God's love for his people shows us something amazing, that real love, real care is when you give of yourself to something. Lust is when you only want to take something. And so he's saying that when you look at someone in a way that you want their benefits, but don't care about their well-being, you've already done something that is inconsistent with the character of God. Now, here's what I'll tell you, is that these are a list of what I've told you last week are impracticalities, impossibilities, practically impossible expectations for people. And that's because if we're honest with ourselves, and this, this is what I would say, this is where we're on a level playing field. Because sin has corrupted even the depths of our own soul, there's no one in here on better standing than the next. So this is a place where I think Christians have often gone off the rails. And here I'll, I'll just kind of introduce it this way. Because of sin, you and I all have disordered loves. We all love the wrong thing. And while all of us might agree, biologically, men and women, they work well together and they keep, they keep the species alive. In our hearts, we don't really want that. And our, our, our heart is perverted. And we don't want what God wants. And here's the thing. This is what's important because my perverted thoughts, my perverted desires are different than yours. The things that you long for that, aren't, that don't align with God's will for this are different than mine. Mine are different from yours. And this is where a lot of people kind of stack up and like, hey, man, if you, if you, if you, if you have disordered desires in this area, this way it's really bad. And this place really, right? And here's all I would tell you. It's like, man, that, that, that's a great distraction from, from the sin that Jesus is poking at here. It's especially helpful maybe for if you're in this room and for you that disordered love. Like, I mean this, I love you, but I'm taking Jesus, ser- Jesus seriously. It's like if, if the thing you love is not what he's saying here, like a, a committed relationship between men and women, but maybe, maybe you have a desire for someone of the same sex. Maybe you have the desire that's in that sense not for just one person. Then I want to invite you, join the club. We all have these perverted desires. That's what sin does. None of us want the right thing. And I want to welcome you into experiencing grace in that. Don't let anyone try to tell you that, like, and this is, I love it. He gives a heterosexual example here as the, as the like, the vile sinner, right? And this is where so many people is like, oh, yeah, the cure for this is just, the cure for sexual brokenness is, like, heterosexuality. And all the heterosexual people in the world be like, no, no. So do you see what I mean? Like, lust is when you try to get something out of a gift that God gives that you're only meant to get from God. And the way that you do that is different than the way that I do that. And yet, both of us live in a a disordered state. And we know that. Here's how you know. You can pursue that thing. You can express that longing as much as you want. And it won't give you what you really desire. And so if you're in the room and you're like, I'm lonely. I want to be married. All All the married people in the world will will teach you something powerful. There's nothing, it's, it's awful to be lonely in singleness, but there's nothing worse than being lonely in marriage and finding out that marriage didn't solve it. Right? 
you could have disordered desires, but then when you, when you finally get the opportunity to, to maybe like live this out and realize that it can't actually give you what God alone can give you, it's, it's heartbreaking. And so I just want to like keep, by all means, if you disagree with me, then all I want to say is keep going, keep doing what you're doing. Keep pursuing that thing that's less than what God intends. And when, when you finally realize that leaves you in heartbreak and disillusionment, I just want you to, like, our church will be the one to go, like, yeah, I get, us too. Come back to Jesus. Come back to God's grace. That thing you wanted, it could never give it to you anyway. It was just a gift that was going to point you to the giver. So lust is when we, we want to simply use people to get a thing, or in this case, we want to, to get something that God alone can give. And it's drastic. Did you hear what he says? This is how awful it is. He says in verse 29, you should gouge out your eye, or even in the next verse, chop off your arm. And, and here's the fun part. If, if you weren't already made uncomfortable by the topics Jesus wants to talk about, namely sex, he introduces twice here another one, hell. Thanks, Jesus. I mean, this is, think of it as like Jesus is, is serious about it. He's saying this is a picture of eternal judgment, this is a picture of being separated from God's plan in a way that, that leads to suffering that is eternal. Yes, Jesus, in this sense, is a fire and brimstone preacher. Thankfully, he does it better than probably the ones you've heard before. But nonetheless, Jesus talks about these things that we often don't want to talk about. And in this sense, the, there is a lack of integrity when our desires don't line up with our commitment. We are disintegrated when we, when we want the benefit of something, but we don't want to pay for it. We don't want to give ourselves to it. And this picture of this intimate relationship between men and women that was meant to model God's sacrificing love, right? They were going to give themselves to one another, becomes perverted, and instead of wanting to give yourself to another, you just want to benefit from them. And Jesus confronts this. I would say there's, there's kind of like, there's at least... I'll point out in the next one as well, there, there's like some, some really problematic responses to this. And one of them, I don't know, anybody, is, is when, you, when you blame other people for your lust. When you blame a person for tempting you in some way. Notice Jesus is saying, no, it's your responsibility. Uh, I love this. I, in, just in, a, in the short way, I would say like, this is like a, a beautiful thing that Jesus does. Jesus is very pro-woman here. And any person who might objectify women and think of them as some sort of seductress, he says, no, they're your sister. And so this is a rebuke specifically to men that has the weight of hell behind it. Namely, you are meant to love and care for these people around you in a way that reflects my love and care. And for Christians, um, and maybe if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a believer and you've wondered why Christians have this so outdated, you know, antiquated view of relationships between men and women, like why don't Christians just get with it, right? Here's why. This is, I want you to say, this is what, this is why. Jesus is saying that doesn't rightly reflect God's love for us. And so in this place, we tend to either want to deify it and just to ignore it or, or deify or demonize this and, and in a sense trying to like suppress any desire that we might have. In the end, lust is an evidence we see here of a disintegrated soul. And I want to warn you here. To have a view of physical intimacy between men and women that's disordered from this, this is Jesus' words, not mine, has the consequences of hell tied to it. But I want you to realize, in some sense, 
you've already, with disordered loves, and some of you know this, already begun to experience hell. Because many of you have been sinned against in this area. And your soul is disintegrated when you desire and want to benefit from a person rather than love them. And it leads to cynicism. Right? That's, many of you are, you are like, yeah, this, is, this can't be done. This is impossible. It leads to coldness and it leads to objectification. Let's lump these two together because they have a similar tone. But verse 31, in light of now what the Bible teaches about who God is, how he's given us, given us these relationships as a picture of his care and love and his goodness. Verse 31, it says, it also has been said. Now he goes back to quoting, in this sense, he starts quoting the, the Ten Commandments. Whoever, or excuse me, he, he alludes to in the Ten Commandments in verse 27, but then he quotes something that's not from the Ten Commandments, but, but is something that was just otherwise regularly known, alluded to in, in the Old Testament. But whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now he takes a turn here and in the next antithesis, anti, the next antithesis, I don't know, singular plural, apologize. Um, so in this one and the next one, he isn't quoting a Ten Commandment, he's quoting a rabbinical teaching of that day. And at that day, he's speaking to a time when people were just divorcing people right and left with any sort of justification whatsoever. And the same thing is true. He's like, you're not reflecting. In the same way that your disordered loves over here don't rightly reflect God's kingdom and the way that he's created human beings to thrive in harmony with one another, to, to fruitfully multiply and, and to bear God's image all over the face of the planet. So also, it says, when, when you do give yourself to one another, but but are quickly running away and quickly dismissing one another, so also you're, you are not rightly reflecting the, the heart of God and his faithfulness to us. So he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a, a certificate of divorce. That's what we've heard. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, stop for a minute. If you're in this room and you have ever experienced or been a part of or been close to divorce and felt its effects... This is, this is heavy, isn't it? And I want to encourage you, Jesus speaks to this because he knows it. If he didn't care about the hurt that was caused in that, he would ignore it. At this time, people were breaking these covenants, and the rabbinical tradition was saying, that's okay. Rather than saying, this doesn't rightly reflect the heart of God. So, second thing, remember I warned you about ways that we can like misuse this text in the first passage? The second was this. It's like this is not meant to be an excuse to make people stay in abusive or neglectful relationships. And so if anyone pulls this out, if you're being abused by a spouse, in this sense they have not reflected rightly God's character towards you, do not let anyone tell you, oh, you just sit there and endure it. Please don't. That does not rightly reflect the heart of God. And so we're left again with another, just like the first two, kind of an impossible standard. I mean, after all, add it up. He says, like, if the only basis for, if the only basis for divorce is sexual immorality, quite literally the word is porneia, where we get our word pornography. That is, a, in this sense, a, a desire for, for, again, to lust and to get fulfillment apart from commitment. Then Apart from that, then there's a, there's a sense in which you should be reflecting God's character to one another as men and women, as husband and wife, rather than simply dismissively throwing off the picture of God's covenant and promise-keeping love to one another. 
So practically, remember I told you there's really helpful instruction here? We see again a high view of marriage. And for those of you in the room who have felt the effects or lived through divorce, in many ways Jesus proves the point, right? There's, like we talked about, like if there's no greater gift in this sense between men and women than what we find in Genesis 1 and 2, then in that place of, of the, like the most beautiful harmony, there's no greater hurt than what comes from when this breaks. And some of you are walking around with the effects of that. I just want you to know Jesus speaks to that. He's not, he's not oblivious to it. He wants to bring comfort and healing to that. And I believe he actually can. And I believe he actually will. So I'll leave off this just thinking maybe there are, there are a few like principles we learned from these first two before we move on. In the end, this idea of lust is to des- desire something, to want the benefits of something without committing to it. And so therefore, the same thing that we see in this picture of divorce is, is, is somehow, in, 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 in a way, kind of fired up or like a, a, an example of this on steroids. Because after all, looking at something through lust sees the benefit of a thing. Looking at someone through the eyes of love sees the value of the person themselves. Love is self-sacrificing. Lust is self-serving. And here's where you realize that Jesus speaks to both men and women, even though in this case he's singled out men. It's possible, it's possible to, to want the benefits of a thing without actually loving a person. So a few, a few broad principles. If you're in this room and maybe you're not married, and, you, and like you've, there's a difference between wanting pleasure and wanting a woman, right? I, I, want, I want women. Or if you're in this room as a woman, you're like, loving, I, I like men as opposed to loving a single man or loving a single woman. Then what, what you'll find there is, is likely lust other than love. Even the desire to, like, I don't know, maybe if you're lonely and you're like, I, man, I, I, want, I don't want to be lonely anymore. But notice, that's the language of lust. I just want the benefit. I want them to come fix what's broken in me. I want them to come, right? And, and it, you would think that's a noble motive. It's not. It's trying to get from someone what you can only get from God. And so if you don't care about one single person, you just want to find someone to fix your problem, I want to encourage you. One, it won't work. But two, you are harming people in a way that Jesus says is connected to an eternal disintegration of your soul. And we just want to take seriously the kind of lust that Jesus is talking about. Because love is directed towards a person. Lust is directed towards a pleasure. Let me say that again. Love is directed towards a person and lust is directed toward a pleasure. And if you use people to get what you want, Jesus says that's lust. That does not rightly reflect God's character to me. I want you to be encouraged that it's, a, it's actually God's mercy that you would begin to see the ways in which we are called to a deeper and more God-glorifying love. Because lust separates pleasure from trust and commitments. And that leads us to the last section. The topic of commitments. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have have sworn. Now again, he's not quoting the Bible. You won't find this in the Old Testament. He's quoting the Mishnah, a rabbinic tradition 
um, that, that would have said there are, there are different ways that you can commit, like you can have oaths. So for these people, um, you, can, you can read, you can look this up in the Mishnah, the rabbinic tradition that said you could, like, you could swear on the altar, but you couldn't swear on the gift of the altar. And ultimately what he was saying, and, and this is summar, summarily what they were saying in this, is that there were levels of truth. There are levels of truth. It's sort of true. And he's saying, you've heard it said that there are levels of truth. But I'm saying, what I'm saying to you is that in this kingdom, there are no gray areas. There are simply Jesus who speaks and embodies the truth himself. And so he gives a list, like, don't swear by these things. You don't have any power. That's silly, right? You have no power over them. Instead, let what you say simply be yes or no. That is to say that God's promises to us throughout the entirety of the Old Testament point to the fact that you and I are accustomed, we are used to hearing lies. And even the way we talk about them, right? I love when we have new terms for this, right? We don't want to just call it a lie. It's fake news. It's like, what? That's fake news. I think, I think that's... That's a lie. I think that's called a lie. I don't know. I'm looking. Or like, that's misinformation, right? But think of, that just shows what we worship, right? We don't really care if you call us a liar. We care. You, but if you said we misinformed, well, that's bad, right? And just think in terms of like, this is another place where we're going to need a lot of grace. Because the idea that, that prevailed at that time that there were levels of truth is just as prevalent in your heart and mine now as it ever was. And it's as if he's saying that like, while we're used to hearing lies, our promises and a desire to oath or qualify our statements reveals that not only we're used to hearing lies, we're also accustomed to telling lies. And humans exist constantly in a crisis of truth. This is what, in this sense, this is what sin does, even from the garden. When the first thing that the, men and, the man and woman did when they were confronted with their own sin, what they try to do? Cover it up. And what he's saying here is that a vow made in public with all sorts of external qualifications is no different than one made in private. You can ascribe weight to certain things, and maybe certain commitments we make under oath should. However, he's not saying don't ever say an oath. He's saying don't have any levels of truth, because after all, God does not. Everything you say is in God's presence, not just when you invoke his name. Right? It, I, I illustrate this simply and we'll move on from it. I remember in, on the playground, it was like, do you pinky swear? That was a big deal. Like, if you lie, I'm going to cut your pinky off. And we're like, oh, that's a big deal. Right? As opposed to just like, if I just say something untrue in the presence of God, I don't know, you lose your soul. That's a problem. But we're like, pinky, that's a threat. That'll keep you honest. I mean, it's silly, right? Like, I swear. Like, I, you know... As if to say, like, I promised, but uh, this is what we would do. is like, but I have my fingers crossed, right? So therefore, it's cool. Like, it's not really a lie because I have my fingers crossed. And this is a, right? And we know this, this holds up in every court of law. You, this is, oh, your finger, his fingers crossed. My bad. Right? A again, you, it's silly. It's ridiculous. But what a perfect picture it is of the human heart, isn't it? how we qualify statements. I've tried to even remove, I, I do this even when I'm speaking to you sometimes, I've tried to remove them, like when we say something like, let's be honest. 
right? As though everything I was saying up to that point was what, right? You know, let's be honest, guys. Honestly, I, right? These, just think, this is the crisis of truth in which we live. The same thing that made us cover up in, in the garden is the same thing here that we still try to cover up things. And so in that sense, swearing by things that are outside of yourselves are, what Jesus says, is a distraction from your dishonesty. They had basically said there are levels of truth, and Jesus comes along and says, there is not. And there's a deep sense of cynicism around this for all of us. And Jesus says, I, I will help you see what's true. And the life in my kingdom will not be marked by levels of truth. Life in my kingdom will be marked by what is absolutely true. And so he exposes our heart. He exposes our desire to cover up. Let your yes be yes. Let what you see and what you know to be true be spoken in truth. And everything else be dispensed with completely. We're in a crisis of truth, and in God's kingdom, you and I as citizens get to testify to a greater king. Right? You have heard it said, don't swear by what? Right? But I say to you, don't even share that thing on social media if it's even somewhat questionable. Unless you're willing to do two things. One, publicly repent for lying. If you're not willing, don't say it, right? Or two, at least qualify it with like, right, I'm not sure if this is completely ironclad. And so we're in a crisis of truth, and, and this is pretty cool. Like, you and I as Christians are called to speak the truth of what Christ has done, that he has taken our place and resurrected victoriously. That's the truth by which all other truths rise and fall. Stop giving your, like, stop giving your character and witness over to things that may or may not be true. And be willing to say something amazing. Ready for this? It's a crazy phrase. I don't know. I'm not sure. Here's my best guess. Right? We're in a crisis of truth. And Jesus says, hey, I have, I, that doesn't reflect my kingdom rightly. Speak what's true. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Maybe you would hear it this way, right? You have heard it said, speak your truth. But I say to you, there is no subjectivity to truth, there is that which is true and that which is false. You have heard it said, post on social media things that seem like they might be true. But I say, I say to you, there is an absolute truth, and you're better off being silent than testifying to a kingdom other than Jesus's. Don't you realize that everything you say is in God's presence? Don't you realize that everything you say is in God's name? You who bear his image. So where does that leave us? I think there's three things. I'll run through them quickly, and they'll invite us into, I believe they'll invite us into a celebration of communion, which we want to do every week through this season of Lent as we prepare for celebration of the resurrection. One, when you think about lust and love, see the silhouette and the gracious impossibility. It's impossible to, it's impossible. Like if I told you, hey, stop, lusting over things and wanting the benefit of things rather than loving and caring for people. You wouldn't be able to do it. But notice the silhouette of the perfect righteous person here isn't of you. Jesus is the lover of our souls who loves us with pure love. Jesus has modeled the love he describes here. He has given himself to us. And here's, I mean, this is the beauty of it. Like, we provide no benefit to him. <laughs> like, we provide zero benefit and he gives himself completely. He demonstrates what pure love is. 
There's not a hint of lust in him at all. He doesn't want some benefit. He doesn't want to objectify us or use us or get something out of us. He wants to give himself to us. The silhouette here in verse 27 through 30 is the silhouette of Jesus. Look at the second one. Jesus is the constantly faithful husband who gives himself to us in our unfaithfulness. Do you see the gracious impossibility? Who could ever, who could ever live up to the standard of marriage? Who could ever be perfectly faithful as a husband or a wife? And we see the silhouette here is not of you and me. The silhouette is of Jesus, who is the husband who gave himself to the unfaithful spouse. Uh, I heard a mentor of mine say this. Well, this, this will apply well because he's speaking to men. I don't mind speaking to men. It could apply to women just as well. But like you can't be, he said it this way, you'll never be a good husband until you're a good bride. Right? Like, you will never be a good husband to love your wife until you realize you were loved perfectly by Jesus. He is the great lover of our souls. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm really glad because it's starting to crack in, right? Now you're starting to realize what kind of loving human you're supposed to be. He is that perfect lover of our souls who doesn't lust after us but gives himself faithfully and never takes his promises back. And lastly, Jesus is all of the promises of God fulfilled. The truth in the flesh, God's yes. And in him there is no deceit. And his promise to come to do for you, to heal every broken place he highlights here, is sure and true, and you can trust him. Here's how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Talking to these people he loves. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to, from Judea, or to Judea. And he gives kind of a parable, I think. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Do you hear that disintegrated sense of truth? And I love this. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Why? Why would he be truthful to these people he loves? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy's friend and I, was not yes and no, but in him, that is in Christ, <laughs> is always yes. As Jesus tells us what it means to give and receive oaths, look at what Paul tells us. For all the promises of God. All of them. Promises of God to renew places broken by lust. Promises of God to make whole what's been broken by pornography. Promises of God to heal things that have been broken in your life by lies. The promises of God to restore and redeem even the areas that have been busted and destroyed by adultery, by divorce. All of those promises to heal and to restore every single one of those things he highlights here in God are what? Yes. Yes. All the promises of God find their yes in him, that is Jesus. And that is, why it is in, excuse me, and that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is the one who loves, not lusts. Jesus is the one who is faithful to us, not us. Jesus is the one who keeps his promise and his truth. And you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him with this vision of of relationships between men and, women, men and women. You can trust him with marriage. You can trust him. You can trust him with what's true because he is faithful and true. One of the last stories of the Bible, the vision God gives the apostle John, says this, Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it 
This is the name of Jesus, John says, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This teaching of Jesus is a silhouette of the perfect and righteous life. It's the silhouette and picture of him. These gracious impossibilities with respect to our heart, with respect to relationships between men and women, with, our, with respect to our relationship to the truth, they're gracious impossibilities. I say gracious because we see that they're impossible and realize that in our desperation, in their impossibility, Jesus is the faithful and true one who fulfills them all for us. And you can trust him. You can turn to him. He will make right and heal all that's broken. All that he draws out in us, all he brings to the surface here are places he will heal and restore. And his kingdom will be marked by love, by a faithfulness you and I can't even imagine, and a truth that our heart can't even fathom. And they're offered to you and me and Jesus, who instead of exploiting us, lived a perfect life, laid it down for you and for me, and was resurrected victoriously as God's vindication that he is faithful and true. Let's thank, thank him for that and pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are for us all the things that this text requires. You are the fulfillment of these desires. You are the, you are the culmination of all of history. You do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for the instruction here. It's practical. It's helpful. I thank you that you, you give us a picture of what it means to live in your kingdom, and I thank you for that. But God, we also confess that these are impossible for us to uphold. The evidence of that is that each of us are walking in here with, with brokenness, even in our own lives, harm that sin in these areas have caused. God, would you do something by the power of your spirit that only you can do? As we reflect on the ways that we've been hurt by being lied to, by being betrayed and abandoned, the ways that we've been destroyed by lustful desires to take advantage, as we even realize the harm we've caused for exploiting and objectifying people, for not keeping our promises and for being liars in our own heart, as we think about these things, would you move towards us with great comfort? Might we be reminded, Jesus doesn't draw these things to our attention to shame us. He draws these things to our attention to heal us. Would you bring about healing? Thank you that you are the faithful and true. Thankful that you, thank you you keep your promises to restore and to redeem. Thank, thank you that you do not exploit us, but instead you were willingly exploited on our behalf. May we celebrate that today. May we receive the grace that comes from it in Jesus' name. Amen.